Okay, well, last week we, we looked at, it was kind of the beginning of looking of, at missions and um, try, to, try to start with what our motivation would be to, to look at this ministry called missions, which isn't really a biblical term, it's a term that we've put out there um, in the church to do the Great Commission. And we found out that our, um, our motivation should be that God's glory, first and foremost. And um, why, why do we go out to the nations and it should be, first and foremost, to glorify God. Um, and hopefully, you got the same thing as, as I did. That I, I mean, I, I felt like going away from that I just gave you a lot of information. And I'm not sure that it really... Uh, meant anything to you, but we should have concluded that in using people to make the gospel known, God acts to to magnify His own glory, and He particularly delights to do that by showing grace and mercy to sinners. But He uses us to get that message across to the nations. We also talked about the foundation of missions, that uh, that being the excellence and greatness of God, um, but specifically the very important connection between our goal, which is to glorify God, and our action, which is being obedient to God's will. I tried to show the importance of approaching missions with a proper God-centered perspective rather than a man-centered perspective, which I think is most common in the church today. Hopefully not ours, but I'm just saying in general, in the church. Uh, remember Ephesians 1? What was the, what was the phrase that Paul re- repeats in verse 6 and 12 and 14? To the praise of His glory, yes. Or, or to the praise of the glory of His grace, even. Paul goes on to tell us in Ephesians 2 that God's merciful work of making us alive, raising us up, and seating us in the heavenly places in, in 2, 6, 7, verse 7, was so that in the ages to come He might show us the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Then Ephesians 3, verse 10, the unfathomable riches of Christ to the Gentiles was so that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And all three of those passages in Ephesians clearly indicate that the ultimate goal is what? God's glory. Good. God provided salvation to the praise of His glory and grace. Salvation is offered as a gift of grace so that God will be praised for His kindness. Man will not be able to boast. The unfathomable riches of Christ are proclaimed to the Gentiles, and the Gentiles are included in God's provision in order to display His wisdom. So this puts God's provision... And, uh, and proclamation of salvation in their proper place, which is God glorifying Himself. 
Since he pursues his own glory with intense passion, the provision of salvation is rich and bountiful, and the proclamation of salvation carries his promise of power and effectiveness. It's clear then that the goals of God's glory and man's good are not, they're not at odds with each other. They fit perfectly together. MacArthur puts it this way, the supreme way in which God chose to glorify himself was through the redemption of sinful men. And it is through participation in that redemptive plan that believers themselves most glorify God. Therefore, the believer who desires to glorify God, who wants to honor God's supreme will and purpose, must share God's love for the lost world and share in his mission to redeem the lost to himself. Christ came into the world that he loved, that he loved and sought to win sinners to himself for the Father's glory. As Christ's representatives, we are likewise sent into the world that he loves to bring the lost to him and thereby, thereby glorify and honor to God. Our mission is the same as that of the Father and of the Son. So, so rather than compete with each other, one is subordinate to the other. God's, man's good is then subordinate to God's, God's glory. In other words, God glorifies himself by graciously saving sinners. And all of that I was hoping to get across last week. Not sure I did such a good job at that, but, I, but that's, that's what I was hoping to accomplish. Well, that brings us to today's lesson, and today we want to consider more specifically our responsibility to fulfill the Great Commission given to us by Jesus in Matthew 28. Go ahead and turn to Matthew 28, 18 to 19. We need to understand what it is that Jesus has commissioned us to do so that we can glorify Him on the earth while we're here by accomplishing what He's given us to do. Matthew 28, 18 to 20. Everybody there? Okay. And Jesus, here's how it goes. And Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Um, a, a few things to keep in mind as we approach the text. This is our main text today. We're going to go to other places, but this is the main one. So a, couple thing, uh, a few things to keep in mind. These words are for all of Jesus' disciples, not just the apostles. Okay? If you've turned from your sin to trust Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, this passage is for you. You are called to work with other believers to lead people to faith through the preaching and teaching of the gospel and teach them all that Jesus has commanded. All that Jesus commanded. You are called to be part of missions, and we're, we're going we're gonna to see how here in a minute when we look at the text. 
there's a there's so as w- when we started this whole series out, I said that there's a there's a the, our main source here in this is God's word, the main source, and so we're gonna we're gonna break it the exposition down today. Um, there are other sources that I've used, and you've heard me quote them. One is for the sake of his name, or for uh, let the nations be glad, and that was Piper's book on missions. And then also uh, there's another one called For the Sake of His Name by a guy named Dave Doran. And so those are, those are kind of the other two, two uh, commentary type things that, that I, um, uh, or at least sources that I'm, you'll hear. Um, and I've already quoted one of those quite a bit. Um, so so we're, now as we look at the exposition of Christ's commission, um, we need to make sure that our, our view of missions comes from the biblical text, okay? Not, not imposed our, our thoughts, or what we want it to say is imposed on, on it. So that we don't want that to happen. We want it to come from there. So, we'll, so it, this is going to be a simple ex- exposition of this passage and and we'll we'll talk about it more and more as we go on in the next few weeks but but today we're it's going to be a little technical um, because we're going to look at grammar and things like that Um, but but so, so because we want to look at the text not impose something onto the text you see the difference okay in these verses the Lord sets forth his desire for the church the Lord himself establishes the termination point of the commission by using the phrase, even, even to the end of the age. See that in verse 20? So a simple, so, so there, is a, there is a termination of this. We start off by saying, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you place your faith and trust in him, this is for you. But there is an end to it. And that's in verse 20, even to the end of the age. Um, so I'm going to give you a simple outline. It's on your sheets. And that is the authority. And that's verse 18. The activity, that's verses 19 to 20, first part of 20, 20a. And then the assurance. That's 20b. Um, so the authority, the activity, or the statement. Statement may be a better way of saying it, but it doesn't fit the outline really good. So you have to, you know, to make it all A's, I'm making authority, activity, and assurance. Mine, that's not, that's me, okay? Not the text itself, but we're, we're trying to have a good outline here, okay? So that's the outline. All right, number one, the authority of the program. In verse 18, the Lord, the Lord gives a definite statement about his person and authority. So first, first he provides an indication of the character, the character of his authority. So first it's the character, he he provides an indication of the character of his authority. The authority of his is because he is the divine son of God. He is the Messiah. 
which was proven by the resurrection, his resurrection from the dead. Look at Acts 2, verses 25 to 26. It's kind of a longer passage, so someone who doesn't mind reading a longer passage there, go ahead and read that. And we see here the, the, the proof that he, he is the divine Son of God, He is the Messiah, and it was proven by the resurrection from the dead. Acts 2, 25-36. For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue exalted moreover my flesh also will live in hope, because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the way of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath, to seat one of his descendants on his throne. He looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Yeah, yeah. So that says it right there. We, he, is, he is the divine Son of God. He is the Messiah. And the resurrection is, proves it. Not just that he died on the cross, but the resurrection proves that. The authority was delegated, given by the, in other words, it was given by the Father. Uh, that is Ephesians 1, 19 to 23. Ephesians 1, 19 to 23. The authority was, his authority was delegated. It, the Father gave it to him. It was given by the Father. Ephesians 1, 19 to 23. And what is the surpassing greatness of this power toward us to believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ, when he raised him from the dead, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is made, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Yeah, so you see that there where, where he's saying, he, he, he raised him from the dead, seated him at his, at his right hand. Um, he put all things in subjection under his feet. Um, so it's through the exaltation of Christ to the right hand of the Father, and, and he's exalted above principalities and powers and every name that is named. The authority is granted because of his obedience to the will of the Father. 
Now look at, look at Philippians 2, 9 and 10. I'm sorry, 9 through 11. Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Someone read that. This reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth, under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Yeah. So Christ is exalted above all, and every knee will bow to him. So first we see that the, the, the character, the character of his authority, in who he is, and he, so that gives him the authority. And second, Christ's words indicate the comprehensiveness of his authority, the comprehensiveness of his authority. We see in the words, all authority, in the, past, in the Great Commission, and in heaven and earth. He's already revealed in the book of Matthew that he po- possessed authority. He's, he, he says in, in Matthew 14, 35, in, it, in his words, he says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Uh, he says it in Matthew, in that he forgives sins in 9, 6, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth, to forgive sins. So he said to the paralytic, get up, pick up your bed, and go home. And he also, we also see that the, the, the authority in Matthew where, where he is healing and casting out a, a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute in, in Matthew 12. The point is that this authority that we see in specific instances is now presented in a universal scope. It's, it's comprehensive. It, Christ has all authority. And why, so, so think about this. Why, why is the authority of the Lord so important to the Great Commission? For us, to, us going out into the world, why is, why, what are we going to face, who, who are we going to be faced with? Satan, yeah, yeah, yeah. The answer is the nature, the nature of the spiritual conflict that we're going to be, we are faced with, and what, and when the Great Commission was there, uh, given from then until now and on into the end of the age, we are going to be. It's a spiritual battle that we're 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 facing here. At the beginning of Christ's earthly ministry, who was he exerting authority over in Matthew four? Remember that? It was, it, was, it was the devil, the Satan, yes. And then throughout his ministry, we again, again we see it even in that, in that Matthew 12 passage uh, where, he's, where he casts out demon, uh, a demon, possessed man, he casts the demon out. He, he has authority over Satan. In Matthew 13, 19 uh, it says that Satan is actively plucking the seed of the word out of the soul of men, men's hearts. The New Testament epistles show that the church carries on this battle. And turn to Ephesians 6 uh, and look at verses 10 through 12. Ephesians 6, 10 through 12. You know this. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. 
Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. We have a spiritual conflict. When we go out to share the gospel, that's what we face. 1 Thessalonians 2.18 says that it's Satan and his forces who continue to hinder the work of the gospel. Paul says, for we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, yet Satan hindered us. Romans 16.20 tells us that the Lord will soon crush Satan. But for now, the church is called to deliver the gospel to the nations. So it's kind of foolish for us to think that the church can do this on the basis of its own authority. The church engages, engages the world and Satan's kingdom on the solid authority of the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's, that's good news. It, we, it's not on our own. Um, the Bible also says while men slept, the enemy came and so cares. So it's not just a Satan thing, but but when when you don't teach the word, Satan comes and he sows the terror. Yes. And yes. so you have to be very on guard at all times, otherwise he's coming in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He has nothing else to do. Ultimately, though, that's a spiritual battle. That we have. Yes. Yeah, that's, that's his whole purpose in life. Yeah. John Stott said, The fundamental basis of all Christian missionary enterprise is the universal authority of Jesus Christ in heaven and on earth. If the authority of Jesus were circumscribed on earth, if he were but one of many religious teachers, one of many Jewish prophets, one of many divine incarnations we would have no mandate to present him to the nations as the Lord and Savior of the world. If the authority of heaven were limited to heaven, if he had not decisively overthrown the principalities and powers, we might still proclaim him to the nations, but we would never be able to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. Only because all authority on earth belongs to Christ, dare we go to all the nations. And only because authority in heaven as well is have his, have we any hope of success. That's so true. So that was, that was the first point. The second one is the activity of the program. We have the authority and now the activity of the program. <laughs> Now, at first glance, we might see in this, when you look at the, the Great Commission here and you read through that, you see, you really see, a, at first glance, you see a number of commands in there. Um, however, the Great Commission really contains one command and only one command. And, and, and then a number of participles. Now, I told you this is going to get a little technical here. So there's one command and a lot of, an, a number of participles that fill, fill a different, that give us additional information about the one 
command. So the, the single imperative here or command is found in the words, make disciples of all, of, of the nations, of all nations. The disciples here are to do what he did, and that is make disciples. Now, there's lots of ideas of what discipleship really means, and we'll, we'll take the time to look at that more closely as we go on. But accompanying this single imperative are participles that give us insight to the imperative. They show us the circumstances in which disciple-making is to take place, and they show us the characteristics of discipleship making alright so one command one imperative make disciples all these other things are 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 not the command to make disciples they're um, they're, they just show us how they give us the circumstances and the characteristics so let's look at the circumstances first okay the first participle go is found in verse 19. The, the participle go is found in verse 19. It modifies the command to make disciples by detailing the circumstances in which the church is to make disciples. The idea in the Greek grammar is that discipleship making will take place as the church is going. Does that make sense? It's not a strict command, but it speaks to the fact that it should be the normal activity. There are a couple things to note here. First, grammatically, when a participle, here it goes, okay, when a participle functions as a circumstantial participle dependent on an imperative, it normally gains some imperative force. Got that? Okay. In other words, in other words, uh, um, the going, the going isn't. It isn't an incidental thing. It's not. It's not going. Isn't just incidental. There's some. There's some strength behind that. He he isn't saying this. He isn't saying, okay, whenever you, you happen to go on a trip, try to make a few, few disciples whenever you, you, you can. That's not what he's saying here. That's not, the, that's not it. No, Jesus was clearly directing them to do something that had to take place prior to the main command. So he was, he was clearly saying here that... He had to do something. Go. Go. And that had to take place prior to, the, to making disciples. We go, which, which has some strength behind it. It's not, eh, you know, maybe. Maybe if you want to, you go and you, do, and you make disciples. No. It's, it's go to make disciples. Second, if Christ's followers were commanded to make disciples of all the nations... It would have to mean that they have to go to the nations, right? I mean, that's just kind of a, a, a um, I don't know, it makes sense. 
If you're commanded to make disciples of the nations, you have to go to the nations. All right? Third, the other commission passages in Scripture make it absolutely clear the command extends to the whole world and believers are being sent into it. Acts 1.8 But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses both in Judea and all Judea and Samaria, Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. John 17, 18. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. John 20, 21. So Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. All right? So... Um, so that's the circumstances. Now, now let's look at the, at the characteristics here. There are two more participles used in these verses that supply additional information to the central command of making disciples. Okay? So these, these two other participles give us more information, in other words, about how do we make disciples. Uh, their exact relationship to the verb is debated, but I think it's best to understand them as teaching or, or revealing the, the characteristics of discipleship making. They're not strictly the means by which disciples are made. They're the marks of discipleship making. An example of this use of, of, of a participle like this is found in Luke 6.35. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return. Well, it's not technically how the money was lent, but instead it speaks of the characteristic way in which the money was given. There's a, there's a difference there, okay? So um, the first characteristics of the first characteristic of discipleship making is that disciples are baptized. The disciple identifies himself with the Lord and yields himself to the authority of his teacher, who is Christ. It's terrible to assume that since baptism is not a requirement for salvation, that it's unimportant. It is important. It's very important. If the Lord commanded the church to make disciples and baptizing the, them characterizes making disciples, then it's very important that we don't minimize the importance of being baptized. The second characteristic of discipleship making is that the disciple is instructed, instructed in all the teaching of the Lord, all the teachings of the Lord. So we see baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I commanded you. The New Testament does not teach an evangelism that does not involve the convert in the process of instruction in the truth and teachings of the Master. 
who is Christ. In other words, evangelism is more than just getting them saved. Evangelism, we've talked about this in evangelism, right, in the weeks prior to this. It's more than just getting them saved. The modern evangelistic evangelistic methods that drive a decision for Christ but fail to instruct the disciple aren't following the Great Commission. That's what it says here. They must be taught to, to observe all the things of Christ. So it's, it, it is very important to understand the technical or the grammatical aspect of the Great Commission. That is that we are commanded to make disciples, main verb here, disciples, make disciples, and the participles give us the circumstances and the characteristics of discipleship making. Technical stuff. Did I lose everybody? Does it make sense? At least a little bit here. Are you, are you kind of tracking with me? Okay. Then let's go to point number three. Not of you, all of you said yes. So at least some of you are, are tracking. The assurance of the program. Jesus closes the Great Commission with with words of assurance. Now, they're about to embark on the most dynamic work ever begun. So he leaves them with great words of assurance, right? Um, And he goes through his pledge or commitment to be present with them. So there are three things to note about this assurance. First... It's, it's, it's a divine presence. He says, he says, Lo, I am with you. I am with you. In verse 20. It's a divine presence. Jesus himself is with you. The significance of Christ's presence is anchored in the statement found earlier in the passage. All authority has been given to me. The fact that that um, that the authority of Christ, I mean, Christ is our authority, um, and, and that authority is what's going with us, should give us um, uh, assurance there, right? It's a divine presence. Second, it's, it's a continual presence. Look at that. He says, he says um, and lo, I am with you, Always, verse 20, always. The word translated always is a unique word. It means, it means the whole of every day. It's, it's, it's the whole of it. It's always. It's not an assurance just for, the, just for a long perspective. It's an assurance for each day, each day, each day that it's lived. You have that assurance. Always. This includes days of strength, days of weakness. It it includes days of success and days of failure. It includes days of joy and and days of sorrow. Um, It it includes youth and those of age. It includes days of life and days of death. All the days. It's, it, it's a great assurance. It's great, it's empowering, it's encouraging, 
It's a great and wonderful promise. All the days, always, always, Christ is with us. Third, it's an enduring presence. He says, And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Even to that point. It points to the consummation of the history of the church. As the church faces the passing of time, it can rely on the presence of Christ. Always. He will never leave it. There's a lot going on in the world. But, but Christ is always there. Uh, until the consummation of the age. The phrase in the Greek literally says, all the days even to the consummation of the age. All the days even to the consummation of the age. We really don't. Uh, I, we do. I do. But we don't have to worry and fret. Because Christ is with us even to the end of the age. It's encouraging and fascinating to, to note how Acts 11, 19 to 26 details the record of Christ's faithful execution of the program that the Lord Christ prescribed in the Great Commission. Go ahead and turn there. Acts 11, 19 to 26. Here they're executing the plan. The plan that he gave in the Great Commission. And 19 to 26, you'll note some of the similarities here. It says... So then, those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except to Jews only. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. The news about them reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. Then when he arrived and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them all with, resolved, with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. For he was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit of, and of faith and considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. And he left for Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for an entire year, they met with the church and taught considerable numbers. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. So here in Acts 11, we see almost the same thing as we do in the Great Commission. In, in verses 19 to 20, they were going, right? So they, those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch speaking the word to no, no one except a Jew. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and, and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus Christ. They were making disciples. Look at 21, the last part of verse 21 where it says, and a large number who believed turn to the Lord. And then look at the last part of verse 24. 
and considerable numbers were, were brought to the Lord. And then verse, and they were also, so they were going, they were making disciples, they were instructing them, verse, look at verse 26. And when he found him, he was brought to Antioch, and for an entire year, they met with the church and taught considerable numbers. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. So they were instructing them in, in this, this passage. Too. And then in 21, the end of uh, 21, we see that the Lord was with them. Where he says, and a large number of, bla- uh, let's see, where was that? And the hand of the Lord was with them. Yeah, the hand of the Lord was with them. So we see basically the same thing. The commission's given and now it's, it's being done. And they're, and they're following it. They're doing the things that the Great Commission has, that, that Jesus himself asked him to do. So in breaking the Great Commission passage down, we see that the central focus of the passage on the Great Commission is the command to make disciples. The central focus of the passage of the Great Commission is the command to make disciples. Many would say the central focus is to go. No, it's not. It's to make disciples. Any meaningful attempt to obey this commission must come to grips with what it means to make disciples. The task then we have to, before us here, is, is announcing the good news of Jesus Christ. It's making disciples for Jesus Christ. And we can't, we can't make disciples without announcing the good news. That's why we started with the good news, the gospel, evangelism. But, that, but, but we need to understand that that's where the Great Commission starts, not stops. And let me, let me illustrate it this way. Suppose I could harness the technology to orchestrate a satellite broadcast of a gospel message to every nation in the world. Probably wouldn't be that hard to do these days. Would that fulfill the Great Commission? Let's say that I could somehow arrange that every person on the globe would actually hear the satellite broadcast. Would that fulfill the Great Commission. Both of those scenarios would be great cause for rejoicing. I, I, it would be great to be able to do that. We have live stream for that purpose that others that even aren't here do that. Neither of those things would fulfill the Great Commission. They would be the first step in fulfilling it, but the Lord's command demands more than simply preaching the gospel to the nations or even every person to those nations. Discipleship making includes more than that. That's teaching them all that the Lord commands. And so we need to resharpen our focus on the essence of the Great Commission by considering two things. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? And how are disciples of Jesus Christ made? Well... Next week, we'll look at that together and hopefully we'll answer at least one of those questions. Maybe both, um, but 
Um, we'll see. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? We'll, 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 that, that's next week, all right? What time is it? It's about time to let you out. All right. Any questions? Yes. You know, I, I see the challenge to the end of the age. That's given to the church as a whole. But I think individually, to us, it's till the day we meet the Lord that we're, we're required to do this. Keep doing it until you meet the Lord. I mean, that's... Absolutely. Yep. Yep. Individually. You know, corporately. Yeah, yeah. And when you meet the Lord, then the rest of us have to keep going until the end of the age, right? <laughs> yeah. 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 So it's the challenge. It's 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 what we're we're asked to do as the church, being a body of believers, the body of Christ, not the building. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for the day you've given us. Pray that you would just now encourage us as we fellowship together, as we sing uh, songs and praise your name together in our service to follow. It's in Christ's name I pray, amen.